Hello everyone, David here again, just checking in because we are now a little over one week away from the C.S. Lewis reading day. So November 29th is Lewis's birthday and we're going to be celebrating his legacy in a number of ways. Firstly, we have lots of different content creators are going to be producing videos, articles, podcasts to particularly mark the event and share their favorite quotations and what Lewis has meant to them. We're also going to have a couple of crossover episodes, but we're also encouraging all of our listeners to share their favorite C.S. Lewis quotations online on social media. And to make this really easy, I have uploaded all of the graphics we've ever produced with C.S. Lewis quotations onto our website. So you can simply browse through, check out your favorite book and go and see what quotation graphics we've got that you can just download and share. And please, when you share them, if you could share them with the hashtag C.S. Lewis Reading Day. Now, rather than just wrap it up there, there are two other things that I wanted to share. The first is an interview with Dr. Jason Lepuyavi. It's the first part of an upcoming Half Pint episode, which should be going live in about a week or two. But I wanted to share it today because he's talking about an upcoming C.S. Lewis conference in Portland next year. And tickets currently have an early bird discount, so I wanted to make sure that you had the opportunity to buy them. After that, I'll share an episode of Andrew's appearance on The Lamp Post Listener. He was recently on their podcast talking about a chapter from The Last Battle. Other than that, I would just like to wish all of the residents of the United States a very happy Thanksgiving later this week. I hope you enjoy lots of lovely turkey and time with your families. And Pints with Jack will officially be back for Season 7 next Tuesday. And we'll see you then, when we'll go further up and further in. Cheers! Hello everyone, and welcome to another Half Pint session. Today we're joined by a former guest of the show, Dr. Jason Lapoyavi. He has been doing interesting things, as always. Uh, but he's got one particularly interesting thing on the horizon that he wants to talk to me about. So Jason... Welcome back to the show. Thank you, David, and thanks for inviting me back to pitch my interesting news. <laughs> yes, so let's just catch up. Since you were last on the show, you have now moved, changed jobs, lots of change. Where are you now? Wow. Well, to bring you up to date, or to bring listeners up to date, a lot has happened over the past year and a half. I was hired as the new C.S. Lewis Associate Professor of Theology and Literature by George Fox University in Oregon. So this is my second year here. In addition to teaching for the Great Books Honors Program, They've uh, asked me to create, to design, to lead a new C.S. Lewis initiative, which I'm very excited about. We have become the academic home of Zane Zucht, the C.S. Lewis Journal. Mm -hmm. We're partnering with the second oldest C.S. Lewis society in the world and the oldest that continues to meet in person. I'm speaking, of course, about the Portland C.S. Lewis Society founded in 1972, so celebrated its 50th anniversary last year. And now we are going to launch a, an annual or biannual conference called the Undiscovered C.S. Lewis Conference. And the inaugural event will take place next September here in Oregon. 
That is really exciting. <laughs> and uh, I think I've just about cleared it with the wife, so I'm also hoping to attend. And this will actually be the first time I've been on the uh, in the Pacific Northwest since I moved away from Seattle. Well, you might bring your wife with you. We're a child-friendly event. <laughs> yes, but my children are not friendly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, she's uh, she, she's she's giving this to me as a little present to uh, to to get away and to nerd out with some fellow nerds for a little while. Um, oh, wonderful! We owe her uh, a favor. Yeah, yeah. So, tell us about the conference. What are you? Who you? Who have you got coming? What are the topics that are going to be addressed? Details. The general theme is quite self-explanatory. So, the undiscovered C.S. Lewis, where. We're aiming to do two things at the same time, to become kind of the venue for uh, revealing new cutting-edge scholarship on C.S. Lewis, especially the undiscovered side of him. So new discoveries, forgotten um, ideas or refreshed ideas, uh, just really exciting. So that's one thing we're trying to do. But at the same time, we want to keep this public facing. So it's not just a bunch of uh, academic nerds, but more general nerds that come to <laughs> together. So we have six keynote uh, speakers for this inaugural event. We've created space for a hundred, up to a hundred short papers. So I'd really encourage scholars uh, at every stage of their career to submit paper proposals. The call for papers is on our website. Students are uh, very welcome to come. And uh, we'll have two or three theatrical productions. We will have a pre-screening of a brand new documentary on the friendship of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and much more. So very much in the ecumenical space spirit of the inklings we hope to be a robust scholarly conference but not just an academic conference a more holistic conference celebrating camaraderie and uh, the imagination and the intellect of lewis and his friends mm -hmm. i love the fact that you're looking at new stuff because you and I have had various conversations about certain of Lewis's books that are very well trodden. You know, there's been an awful lot of scholarship on them, an awful lot of attention, but there are also other ones that have been virtually untouched. I'd even say the uh, space trilogy, the science fiction trilogy, the ransom trilogy, whatever people want to call it, uh, that has recently received a whole bunch of scholarship and popular level books to really bring it in, bring it to the forefront as a C.S. Lewis book in the last few years. And um, we actually had a, a listener reach out to us who was thinking of uh, doing postgraduate work in Lewis. And they said, what would you suggest? And what I suggested is go somewhere new because there is so much more of Lewis to explore. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, the, his cosmic trilogy, Michael Ward has taught us all not to say space trilogy. So the <laughs> ransom trilogy or the cosmic trilogy, I think is going to... Um, we haven't, it has a, a brilliant future, let's put it this way. I recently came back from Belfast, where the C.S. Lewis Institute of Belfast or, um, hosted a two-day C.S. Lewis symposium, and we had a very interesting paper on how Lewis inverts the imperialist 
colonizing narrative in his Ransom trilogy. So that, I, I hope we get several paper proposals on, on that. Michael Ward, whom I just mentioned, he's one of our six keynote speakers, and he's going to be revisiting his revolutionary planet Narnia theory some 20 years after its conception. Uh, literally, his talk is called Planet Narnia Revisited. So what's, what evidence slash counter evidence do we have have uh, surfaced over the past 20 years since its initial publication? I believe it was published in a magazine, the, his general idea, before he put it into a book form. We'll also have um, Dr. Holly Ordway, the Tolkien and Lewis specialist, tackle a stubborn question about Tolkien's relationship to Narnia. Mm -hmm. Some recent discoveries and arguments and ideas lead to suggest that it's more complicated than previously and thought. There's also going to be new letters. There's dozens and dozens of un uh, um, unpublished letters by Lewis. There's new poetry out there. Dr. Simon Horobin from Maudlin College is going to give a fascinating talk on Lewis and Tolkien, their early friendship and their work in the Oxford English School. He's uncovered new poetry by Lewis and readers, uh, listeners might already know, if not, might be interested to know that Dr. Horobin or Professor Horobin has basically has C.S. Lewis's chair and modeling college. So that's really, really exciting. There's also a, um, I could go on forever, but I'll just mention one more, a new uh, DPhil in theology from Oxford, Jadiel Perez, historically the first ever DPhil in theology from Oxford. I think the Bible says something about prophets in their homeland. I forget <laughs> what, how the verse went, but he was supervised by Alistair McGrath and um, Michael Ward. And he's had a chance to go through Lewis's unpublished vice pres presidential records at Modeling College. Hmm. And he's intriguingly titled his talk, Lewis, the Rubbish Administrator. <laughs> Lewis, the rubbish administrator. So that'll be that'll be very interesting. I seriously hope that many instructors, course instructors, whether whether in university, college, or or classical high school, um, might they take this opportunity to think about how they how they tweak their assignments for next semester for spring. 2024 and and fall 2024 because this might be a great opportunity to introduce bright students to the world of academia it's a low stake opportunity to experiment with new ideas in a friendly critical but friendly um, venue and get some peer feedback um, pushback or support for these ideas and work and uh, turn these short 20 minute papers into longer articles. I love it. So where should people go if they want to find out more or register? George Fox University's website, you could search C.S. Lewis Initiative at George Fox University or the Undiscovered C.S. Lewis Conference. Um, everything's there. The call for papers, 
the keynote speakers, uh, and so on. Wonderful. And if I make it, which is looking exceptionally likely at this point, hopefully I should be buying my ticket in the next day or two. Uh, I'll be there and I'll be handing out lots of free Pints with Jack swag. I'm going to try and convince my co-hosts to come with me. That's a great idea. Come and pitch your wonderful podcast. Early bird registration is open. Um, tickets are going very f fast. We've made it as affordable as possible. Uh, we're not even aiming to break even. And as mentioned, you don't need to be a scholar. We're hoping um, that anyone feels comfortable coming. September in Oregon is absolutely gorgeous. It's mm -hmm. based on my one and a half years here. It's my favorite <laughs> month in Oregon. It is so pretty and warm still. still. Newburgh, just half an hour, 40 minutes south of Portland, is wine country, basically the Napa Valley of, of Oregon. So you've got the mountains, you've got the old growth forest, the, the ro rolling hills. It's almost like Cotswolds near Oxford. Um, and an hour, 20 minutes away, you've got the Pacific Ocean. So it should be absolutely gorgeous. Mm, yeah, I, it was one of my favorite months as well when I lived in Seattle because you had very nice summers and that was just the last little bit where there's a, a slight chill in the air. It's a little bit mm. more like the dewy, cobwebby mornings that Lewis loves so much. And the rains haven't arrived yet. Exactly, because then it's <laughs> horrible. <laughs> As I said, this is the first part of an upcoming Half Pint episode, which you should be able to find on our YouTube channel very soon. And now we turn to Andrew's appearance on The Lamp Post Listener. Hello and welcome back to the Lamp Post Listener. My name is Daniel. I'm Phil. And this is a podcast where we journey chapter by chapter through C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. This is chapter 13 of The Last Battle, How the Dwarfs Refuse to be Taken In. And we have a special guest. We do. We are joined today by the Reverend Andrew Lazo, a name that some of our listeners might be familiar with. But just for as, as a little reminder for us here... Father Andrew Lazo is an internationally known speaker and writer specializing in C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. He holds a B.A. with honors from UC Davis, an M.A. in Modernist British Literature from Rice University, and an M.Div. with honors from Virginia Theological Seminary. He's a frequent speaker around the U.S. and the U.K. and has written quite a few articles on C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Back in 2009, Andrew published Mere Christians, Inspiring Encounters with C.S. Lewis, and five years after that, he transcribed, edited, and published a previously unknown book by C.S. Lewis, Early Prose Joy, which was Lewis's very first spiritual autobiography. Just earlier this year, Andrew was ordained as, priest, as a priest in the Episcopal Church and in January of 2023, and he serves as the Apprentice Rector at Church of the Messiah in Winter Garden, Florida. He's also pursuing his doctorate in Romantic Theology at Northwind Seminary, where he serves as a distinguished lecturer. Andrew is the glad husband of best-selling author and speaker, Dr. Kristen Ditchfield Lazo. And for nearly 20 years, Andrew has been working on a long-awaited study of Till We Have Faces, 
making groundbreaking discoveries all along the way. Andrew, welcome to The Lamppost Listener. Hey, fellas. It's so great to finally uh, sit down and chat with you. I would be remiss uh, in saying, uh, in not noting that that we are connected through David Bates and the Pints with Jack podcast. And I've been a co-host there. We're starting uh, season seven, and that's my fourth season with them. And it's been a joy to, uh, to enter the world of podcasting, which came at their invite. And, and I'm glad that that brought us into the same circle. Thanks for mentioning that, Andrew. I sometimes I think that it's so... Oh, everyone, you know, David and Matt, and your work is just so popular and, <laughs> and wide, widely known that I, you're right. I, I, I assume that just everyone already knows those great things about you as well, too. But well, they should. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, obviously, you all have been doing some great, great, great work over on Pints with Jack. You joined them back for the Screw Tape Letters. That was when you came on as a full-time host. And it's yeah. been wonderful uh, once you came aboard and, and, you know, just I brought brought a new voice to that show we love matt and david we've been listening to them since they started right before a little just a little before we did and you've been a great addition to that to that uh community as well well it's been fun to find friends even though i've only been in the room same room with david a couple of times and just met matt for the first time but but that uh that philly was there from the from the start interesting enough to uh to folks who are interested in narnia we um we're starting season seven, in which we'll look at uh, letters to an American lady, but we'll also dip into letters to children. Mm-hmm. And he writes a lot about the Narnia process, um, and and lots of things in that. So I'm looking forward to what we what we dive into this year. Yes, we. And on top of that, I just realized we can lord over Matt Bush's head the fact that we met you in person before he ever did. That's right. Earlier, right. earlier this year, we got to um, yeah, meet you. The uh, day after I got ordained. The d- that's right. It's been a yeah. very busy year for you. It's been, <laughs> it's been okay. Yeah, and I'm off to Romania to speak at Lewis Conference in a couple of weeks. And it sounds very glamorous, but um, but it's just it, I, whenever I speak, get a chance to speak on Lewis, I'm paying a long-standing debt for all the good that he's done in my life. That's so, wonderful. That's great. Well, yeah. We are going to talk today about Chapter 13, but before we dive into that, I'd like to just ask you a few questions, some of which sure. I think many of our listeners will be intrigued by, and some of which I think will actually prepare us for the conversation we're going to have on Chapter 13. But can you just let us know, Andrew, how did you first encounter C.S. Lewis? You speak of him as if he has done so many important things for your life, but how did you yeah. first? how did that relationship first begin? Yeah, well, you know, I'm shocked to have be, have become an Episcopal priest, and that was the likely path when I when I started out. For the first 14 years of my life, I wasn't a believer, wasn't raised with believers, um, but I was a voracious reader, and I had a wonderful aunt who kept uh, kept those fires stoked, kept that that hunger fed. And one year, one of the things she sent us was that great, you know, cheapy paperback copies of uh, of the Narnia Chronicles. Mm-hmm. And just fell in love with the stories, fell in love with Peter and his nobility, um, but just loved the, they were rollicking good good tales. I, I ripped right through them and read them again and again. Uh, after coming to faith um, in high school through the witness of friends in a public high school, um, they literally showed me the love of God. And I was like, hey, what is that? And they told mm-hmm. me and I said, well, I'll give some of that a try. and We'll see how that works out. Well, you can see uh, it's a very dangerous thing to set your foot upon the path, says Bilbo. Um, 
And so I reread Narnia in high school and I thought I was, I felt very proud of myself because I discovered, and this might be news to you, so hang on. I discovered there's Christianity in the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> Do I need to pause? Do, shall I pause for a moment to, for you to gasp? Yeah, I just let to, that sink in. Man, we're going to have to re-record all these seasons. We have not thought about that. Yeah, we'll go back and start well, at the beginning again. I, I had someone come up to me as I was reading it and say that they were reading it too. And then I followed up a couple of weeks later and they said, no, I'm not reading it anymore. I found out the whole thing is a, they use the terminology, <laughs> but there were a lot of problems with what they said. The, the like, whole thing's an analogy for it, Christian, Christian yeah, stuff. Yeah. Well, it was, that was food for me. And then in my twenties, I lived in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. I was in the Christian music business, worked with a guy called Phil Keggy, a wonderful mm-hmm. guitarist and sweet man. And was going through a real crisis in my faith. And uh, Phil was going through a big Lewis and Tolkien phase at the time and reading a bunch of those books and lent me letters to an American lady. And then shortly thereafter, I stumbled across Surprised by Joy. Mm -hmm. And I found that Lewis had thought through his atheism better than I'd ever thought through my Christianity. (laughs) And so I'm like, well, crap, I got to get to the bottom of this guy. And that was 30 years ago, and I'm still trying to get to the bottom of that guy. Um, and so he kind of led me back mm-hmm. into reading, led me back to school. Um, mostly I went to university in order to kind of be able to understand the influ- the, the, the illusions and the quotes in Lewis. I, I did a minor in Latin so that I wouldn't have to look up Lewis's Latin quotes, right? You know, when the, the scene in that hideous strength where Merlin and Ransom are talking. Just talking and, and Lewis doesn't give you it. Pilgrim's Regress does a similar thing, too. Where yeah. We yeah. don't, you know. So um, minors in, in medieval studies, you know, that's where all the cool parties were. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to understand what Lewis is about. And that's why I did Modernist British Lit at Rice. Um, so he really kind of, I say that he sparked my imaginative life when I was a child. But when I became a man, he saved my intellectual life and mm-hmm. taught me how to think, taught me how to believe intelligently. I mean, the shallowness that I had seen around me and inside me just got blown away by just trying to understand what Lewis would say. So, uh, so I've been at it ever since. And, uh, and that's led me into a vocation of teaching, which led to priesthood and led me from no church, the Baptist Church, um, Jesus People USA in Chicago, uh, the Presbyterian Church in Nashville, finally came to the Episcopal Church and have found in the Anglican tradition and the liturgical faith uh, a real home, um, that, which really kind of values the intellect and imagination and creativity mm-hmm. along with solid um, Christian tradition, scripture, and, and belief. So I owe Lewis just about as much as, as one man can owe another, as he would say of George MacDonald. That's great. Wow. Well, continuing just thinking through your relationship with Lewis, what about these books, these seven books that we have spent the last few years going through? Do you have a favorite in the Narniad? And if you do have a favorite, now some people, it's, it's like you know picking their favorite child. If you do have a favorite, <laughs> which, which of these books is your favorite and why? Oh my gosh, I'm going to see if I can reach for one on the shelf. I've got my eBay shelf right over here. Uh, yeah, here it is. Um, uh, generally, when people ask me what my favorite Lewis book in general is, I'll either say Collected Letters Volume 3, Till We Have Faces for obvious reasons that we'll t- touch on, I think, a little bit later, um, or whatever Lewis book I'm reading now. But if I think, I think if I had to have one, it would be The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Mm-hmm. So those who are just listening in cannot um, 
cannot smell or hear. Here's the pages of um, a British first edition, uh, third impression of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And mm, that's one I of my love favorite Lucy. covers. Ah, fantastic. And the map on the inside, right? That's great, yeah. Yeah. So, and Reepicheep, the noble Reepicheep, and, uh, and Lucy, and, um, and Edmund, who had becomes, by the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, almost as good as Lucy is. She mm-hmm. and Lucy both recognize that Eustace was the dragon. And for Edmund to be granted that kind of vision that was exclusively Lucy's shows the real growth in in kind of um in in his sanctification to use yeah. the theological world he has changed at his conversion at his guilt and forgiveness and uh much like Eustace and Don Treader he Edmund began to be a better boy and uh and by the time he reaches Voyage of the Don Treader his character really fills out and he leads like Peter does and he sees like Lucy does and he loves, um, which is, I think, the hallmark of those hallmark of those books. And that kind of loving hand to Eustace, uh, it's the hand that, you know, the Weston refuses in Paralandra. Exactly. But, yes. But Eustace takes it. And so that's just, yeah, that's got to be my favorite Narnia. But I love them all. I mean. If you're telling me that I can't have Silver Chair that we did a retreat on a couple of weeks ago in Texas, or or I can't have the last battle, you know, the last they had begun, the la- the first page of the last great chapter, you know, uh, I, I'd fight you. I'd fight you for those. But, <laughs> I love your yeah, thoughts. Tonight voyage. Yeah, I, I love your thoughts there about Edmund as well. I was reading through the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader with a group of fifth graders. We just finished it actually last week. And as we got to chapter 9 or 10, chapters 9 or 10, which is right as they get to the Duffelpuds, the magician's house, yeah. I yeah. had a student. And so you've gotten through chapter 8 where you have um, Edmund and Caspian have kind of fought over Deathwater Island. And I had a student make a comment about, well, you know, Edmund really hasn't done much at all in this book. And he doesn't feel th- th- it was somewhat of a critique, but more, more of an inquisitive critique mm-hmm. by this young student. Along, I don't remember the exact words, but it was along the lines of, this feels like a completely different character from mm-hmm. the first book. And mm-hmm. think, and the student was thinking about this as, as if it was a negative thing. And we were talking yeah. about this. We were in a Socratic seminar together. And oh, one of the things that came out of this, and that was even revealing to me, I was like, oh, uh, this is why I love doing this, was, you know, it feels like a completely different character if the only character trait we give Edmund in wardrobe is that he's a traitor and we have a tendency as readers and as sinners ourselves to put that that only one thing that we see him but who doesn't see him that Mm -hmm. way well it's Aslan himself right Aslan doesn't see him only as a traitor and Lucy exactly also she loves him and the reason Lucy can see is because she loves but that's a whole nother episode oh I know yeah we I wish we could do it now but we can't yeah well and and remember what he's titled as a king Right, he's King Edmund the Just. The just, yes. What do the what does a justice do? A justice judges, but mm-hmm. how often do you hear the justice speaking in the court? Very rarely. The justice doesn't until he's until he pronounces judgment at the end, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that Edmund has become much more judicious about well um, 
and and he's I think he's learned from you know the kind of cruelty that he showed to Lucy and so yeah but but if you look at how he leads like Peter leads in 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 Lion and then how he sees and then the mercy that he extends and even the pity to say you know you were you know just a, a liar I was a traitor Yes. Right. I mean, he owns all of that and yeah. he owns that turnaround in his own life. And, you know, whether or not you come from any kind of belief system, this idea that we can be seen at our worst. But do we want to be taken for our worst moments? Right. Um, and do we want that to be the only thing that defines it? And so uh, Aslan paid the price for for Edmund's, you know, being a perfect little beast, as they call mm -hmm, it. Mm hmm. But Edmund never forgets that lesson. No, no And it doesn't. helps him to lead quietly. It helps him to see piercingly. And then at that crucial moment for Eustace, it helps him to extend him mercy, right? And say, hey, I was worse than you were. Mm -hmm. And and if you notice, um, the next chapter after uh, the, the undragoning of Eustace is how the adventures began. Mm -hmm. So the adventures on the Dawn Treader externally can't begin until they solve that inner conflict and isn't that true of all of us we need to kind of grapple with that shadow dark side that kind of narcissist side that we all have um and 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 uh, eustace does that with the help of edmund that's great and uh, and i think that's such a beautiful moment and that change if you read silver chair in the first chapter Jill says, oh, you've changed and oh, everybody can see it, yes. right? And yeah. how long have they been in term? They had been back to school for two weeks. And those, you know. And so the, the conversion and baptism of Eustace at the beginning of sanctification that begun to be a better boy has been so effective in two weeks in a high school setting, <laughs> in a school setting that everybody can tell. You know, and so I think that a lot of that is kind of midwifed by uh, by Edmund's great example. Mm -hmm. That's so, great. Yeah, yeah. Don Treader's so great. We, but but it's not our focus today. I was as much say, as we're, yes. where, where were you f a few years ago <laughs> <laughs> when we covered the book? Yeah, uh, that's so great. I was here waiting for you guys to call. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned till we have faces earlier, and your yeah. your love and deep knowledge for till we have faces is. Uh, quite famous. Some people say it sometimes it's infamous, but I, I think it's a, a very good thing, your obsession with this book. And um, for our listeners who aren't familiar, tragically, yeah. who are not familiar with yeah. Lewis's yet. final, yes, yet, yet, with his final work of fiction, can you just explain? I, I want to give you the opportunity if we have time, and maybe we don't, so let me know uh, why yeah. this is his best work and which book, because he's writing this book alongside Joy in the yeah. same, within the same decade that he's writing many of these books and the Chronicles. And he publishes, yeah, publishes till we have faces the same year the last battle comes exactly. out. Exactly. Come out of 56. Is, is, there, is there a book you think that also that till we have faces is the most similar to in the Chronicles? Mm-hmm. All of them. <laughs> uh, actually, we'll touch on that in our chapter that we're going to discuss okay. today. There are some very potent moments. I don't want to kind of derail the, the Narnia conversation because, and um, uh, I would maybe offer in trade for obsession, captivation. The Till We Have Faces has captivated me. But the reason it's captivated me is because Lewis made the claim that it was far and away his best book. That's right. And in studying it now for almost two decades, I can assure you that it's true. And there are profound reasons. 
I've been working on a critical study of that book for years. Uh, Charlie Starr, the, the wonderful Lewis scholar, uh, always signs his emails to me, Till We Have Book, um, meaning a <laughs> book from me about Till We Have Faces. Um, suffice it to say, all of Lewis's other works are at least alluded to, if not quoted, in Till We Have Faces. Mm. It's cumulative and culminative of, for Lewis. But the most important thing that it does is it helps to shift and to correct, I'll even be so bold to say, to correct the kind of focus on Lewis, which is so often about the question of joy. But Lewis, at the end of Surprise by Joy, says joy serves only as a signpost to something other and outer. Mm -hmm. And that word, that phrase other and outer is actually a clue uh, Lewis, in a talk uh, he gave uh, for the Four Loves, says that love is where we go out of ourselves towards the other. So Toya Faces helps us to see that everything Lewis is about is love mm -hmm. and not joy. And so we'll see some of that in our chapter today. That's and great. so I think that if I can do, God willing, um, can do what I, what I think I can do, I'll help people to kind of re-see not only Lewis and, and put love at the center of what Lewis is doing all the way along, which I think is true, but hopefully it'll help people to grapple with the idea about the love of God, which mm -hmm. I think is the central uh, and foundational earth-shattering fact of the universe. Um, so that book has helped me kind of focus even in my own ministry on what Lewis calls the intolerable compliment that... Mm -hmm the love of God that kind of makes us tear ourselves open in order to fit all of that belovedness in. And we see some of that in our chapter today. Oh, that's exciting. That's a great uh, foreshadowing a very of what's smooth. to come. <laughs> well, speaking of Set what's up. to come, before we j dive into this chapter, Andrew, y'all are going through, uh, you're about to start season seven in the next few months okay. over on Pints with Jack, and y'all are going to be going through his letters. As you already mentioned, you're going through his um Letters to an American Lady. You're going through uh, the Latin letters, which is exciting, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, letters to children as well. What what can other uh, any of our listeners who may not already tune into Pints with Jack, what can they look forward to if they'd like to join y'all? And why his letters? There's a lot of his fiction and nonfiction that y'all have not covered yet. Yeah. And so yeah. I think sometimes people might think, well, oh, the letters just come when you've done everything else. But y'all are choosing to go into that before even getting through the rest of the ransom trilogy right sure. or some of sure. his other works what about his extensive correspondence what does that reveal to us that some of his published works can't or don't yeah, reveal no. to us absolutely well think about it this way if a long book by lewis is 250 pages his published correspondence is 1300 or 1800 pages oh. um and so, um, so that's, I mean, that's several books, right? That's six, seven, eight books of Lewis's. Lewis answered every letter he received. By the time, you know, he was doing a lot of letter writing, he was famous enough that people were keeping them. And so his letters are this kind of memory trace of his whole life. Mm -hmm. Also, when he's talking about something in a poem and you read a contemporaneous essay, and then a contemporaneous, you know, chapter in a book. He's writing all three at the same time. Those themes come out in his letters. And so 
Um, there's also a, a friendliness. He's, he, he has a long, long correspondences with lots and lots of people. He answers every letter he receives in the order he received it as his Christian duty. Um, so he would beg his friends not to write him during holidays. Um, and sometimes he would complain, you know, that I've just spent two hours pushing pen across paper, the cream of the day gone and none of my own work done. Mm-hmm. You know, he liked to get up in what he called the small dewy cobwebs, cobwebby hours of the morning. But he would consume a lot of his day in this kind of faithful discipleship of loving, humbly, humorously um, people. He was also very terse uh, in terse, not in tone, but in terms of, of style. He would be he would really compact the letters. He would answer as quickly and as cogently as possible. So reading through it is kind of a real uh, lesson in style of how mm-hmm, to write mm-hmm. and get to the point well. Um, so. I mean, and and they're just great fun to read. So I would encourage listeners to get whatever you can. There's a great paperback um, of his letters. Uh, the collected letters, the three volumes, are kind of hard to, to track down, especially volume three. But the others, you can get selections of Lewis's letters. And invariably, when I open up a volume, a couple hours go by, and I'm like, oh, wait, what happened? Because mm-hmm. they're very compelling to read and there's this great kind of humble uh, you know good humor uh, in them so wonderful wonderful reading it really stands out to me that lewis considered responding to those letters his duty but Mm -hmm. he did not consider it to be the work that he wanted to do but it ended up being published work just like everything else yes and And so so many more people benefited not just that one person he wasn't just helping that one person anymore Plus, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a chronology guy, along with Joel Heck, um, and I'm sure that you know yes, this yeah. Chronologically Lewis on joelheck.com, an invaluable resource, 1,200-page PDF of every single date that Joel can track down in Lewis's life. Um, and so for me, kind of understanding what Lewis is saying demands a context. You know, where is he? What's he doing? Kind of what's going on in his life is very helpful. Um, and so the letters provide a whole memory trace, right? Because if you can date an event, and that's how I changed Lewis's conversion date in Early Prose Joy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in Surprise by Joy, he said he was converted to theism in Trinity term 1929. But in Early Prose Joy, he said in the year and the month that he learned to dive is when it happened. And we now know that he learned to dive in June of 1930. So that changes the date. And I've had talks with Alistair McGrath about some of this stuff. Interesting. Um, so the letters are just an invaluable kind of memory trace in addition to their own literary characteristics and, uh, and just a good cheer rollicking fun. That's great. Well, that's on my list now. How yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to dive into um, Letters to an American Lady. I got an addition. Uh, this is I, you've inspired me a little bit. This is I don't believe it's a it's a first edition. Yeah. Uh, but uh, open up. The, let me see the front flap. Let's see. It's does it say book club selection on the bottom it, of the desk? A family bookshelf selection. Yep. Yeah. So this. Yeah. So not a not a true first, but looks exactly like the exactly true first. yes. So yeah. not a true first edition, but still looks like it. And you've inspired me to maybe stay away. Not that they're inherently bad, but I've been staying away from some of the Barnes and Noble kind of 
trade paperback editions of some of his books and looking for some of the much more beautiful ones that are a little bit harder to find, but that you can find on eBay or other places, even your own eBay page, which we'll link down in this episode. And that one is letters to Lyndon B. Johnson's wife. Is that, that's not what, what, that's not the American (laughs) lady. (laughs) No, No. um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, um, the major and the missionary, uh, Warney Lewis, Warren Lewis, Lewis's sure. brother, had a long correspondence with an American missionary, Dr. Blanche Biggs. Um, and unusually, we have both sides of that correspondence. Mm. And the marvelous C.S. Lewis scholar, Diana Glyer, and you should throw a link uh, to her work oh, yes. uh, up there. Um, she has published on the Rabbit Room Press, Andrew Peterson's sure. outfit, um, and Pete Peterson, um, she's published all this correspondence between Warren Lewis and Blanche Biggs, which started after Lewis died. Hmm. And so, um, jokingly, Diana said, "Well, it looks like that. Uh, looks like Warren Lewis also had his own American lady." Um, <laughs> and there's some some really uh, just beautiful reading in there too. So. Well, that's great. Yeah. Let's go ahead now and transition into chapter 13. I think listeners have a good sense of your relationship to Lewis and if they aren't already familiar with you they understand how you're approaching this text yeah. and let's yeah. with that in mind let's dive into one of the very last chapters yeah. in the Chronicles of Narnia a chapter that in many ways is a huge turning point for the rest of this yeah. book and, and Phil I know you actually haven't read what comes next so some of this might be significantly more confusing to you but it's okay because we're so close. You're so close we're to so the end. Close. <laughs> exactly. But with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and read the chapter summary for chapter 13, and then we will dive into all that is happening here. So here is yeah. chapter and by 13. by the way, Daniel, that's a, that's a great approach simply because uh, Bruce Edwards um, of Blessed Memory, a wonderful Lewis scholar who died a few years back, uh, when all the Narnias came out, the movies started coming mm-hmm. out, and people were asking about allegories. And of course, they're not allegories. They are supposals. Uh, Lewis said, let's suppose there was a world like this. How would things work out? But um, Bruce said, read the lines before you read between the lines. Exactly. Um, and I think that that's a great approach. So yeah, carry on. All right. Well, here's chapter 13. Tyrion and the seven friends of Narnia feast upon beautiful fruit that they find nearby in this mysterious place. Peter explains that some of them were whisked away into Narnia from the train platform, while Lucy shares that a similar thing happened to those friends inside the train. Tyrion is surprised to learn that he entered this world through a door that appears to come out of the ground. He learns from Lucy, who is interrupted regularly by Eustace, that the Narnians, the Kalormans, and the dwarves have entered through this stable door as well. The group of dwarves, astoundingly, do not appear to realize where they are. Despite the beauty of this open world before them, the dwarves believe they are inside a disgusting stable. Nothing is able to convince them otherwise. Aslan himself finally appears to the friends, and he explains that there is nothing he can do to reveal the truth to them. Well done. I'd love to, to turn to you really quickly, Phil. And because Andrew and I are familiar with, with this chapter and with the rest of this book, I think many of our listeners just need to know what is going on in your head right now. Yeah, this was 
This was a really interesting chapter because for the first time I felt like we were starting to get answers, but then when I finished the chapter, I felt that I wasn't 100% sure. On top of that, I mentioned something that happens in the in this chapter specifically to SJ. And I found out she had a reaction that made me question whether or not I actually understood it. So hmm. I'm really curious about the train part. Okay. And how mu- I'm not sure where they are. I'm really not sure how the door works. And I, I'm not sure. Sh- it's hard to know. Cause is this an analogy? Is this a supposal? What, which things line up with the stuff that we know about or the stuff that we've read about in the Bible? Um, and I'm just, I thought I was so close to having more answers, but now there are a few more chapters and I'm not sure if we're going to get a few more explanations or, mm-hmm. or what. And I'm not even sure that y'all can tell me <laughs> right now, but I really did enjoy this chapter and I, I prepared for this uh, 20 29 30 hours ago and i'm glad that i waited as long as i did because i've been really excited to talk about this and to dive a little bit deeper sure well thanks for sharing that one of the things that interests me and andrew i'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well too is the one of the very first things that happens is and i think our listeners or readers of lewis's books who are familiar with uh, their bibles or just familiar with the christian story itself we get to this very interesting place that is feels like somewhat of an in-between place between Narnia and maybe Aslan's country. It's not quite clear at this point what's going on. And one of the first things that all of these uh, children or these what were children uh, all see, these seven friends of Narnia, is this beautiful fruit, which Lewis explains is so beautiful it, it, it's it's better than the freshest grapefruit or the juiciest orange or the most melting pear, right? It makes mm-hmm. all of those things look bad in comparison. But right, right before these students, these students, excuse me, these uh, characters go and eat this fruit, there's a little bit of a fear of should we be doing this, right? Mm-hmm. We can think about uh, back to Genesis chapter 3. We can probably also think back to Magician's Nephew. Right, And Peter has, Mm -hmm. the high king, has this great line where he says, it's all right, I know what we're all thinking, but I'm sure, quite sure, we needn't. I have a feeling we've got to the country where everything is allowed. Mm -hmm. And then the children take and they eat of this fruit, and there's no, they haven't done anything wrong. There's no guilt involved. There's no permission even needed. How interesting that Mm -hmm. that's where we start. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and you'd also, I think you would, if you've read um, Lewis's um, the science fiction books, I think that you would rightly um, kind of hear at least an echo of Paralandra. Oh, absolutely. Where Weston, and that's an unfallen world. It's a world where there is a sinful human, but there is no sin in the world and uh, no fallenness. And so he eats this marvelous fruit. And even that fruit, I think, pales in comparison uh, to this. Um, And the narrator says, I can't describe it, which echoes what Paul says about the third heaven, Hmm. right? Um, You can't can't find out what it is like unless you get to that country and taste it for yourself. And that certainly, I think, has echoes of what happens in the great divorce, right? You shall eat such apples, right? If you are, you know, if you if you go further up and further in, right? Instead of trying to pick up the apple, 
the the golden apple that this uh, that this the ghost tries to do. And so, I think you have some hints about uh, where this place might be. What's interesting too, and I think this is the right time to maybe discuss it, even though it doesn't come up till later, is. You know, if you're reading this, and we know that there has something to do here with Aslan's country, and so Phil, there's not, we're not, you know, giving you too much information here, but the idea is, well, if Aslan's country was a supposal, or sorry, was an actual allegory of heaven, for instance, well, one of the things that's interesting is that we see both. Uh, all kinds of people here. Later on, we'll see the dwarves. We know that the um, at least one Kalorman, two Kalormans, because Emeth there as well too, but the first mm-hmm. Kalorman comes in. We know that uh, Ginger the cat comes in as well, and even Tash was there. And on top of that, even one of our characters, Eustace, is constantly interrupting and kind of getting on people's nerves. And so mm-hmm. one of the questions I had thought at first was, well, is there is there sin here? How does this work if... If this is an allegory, if this is supposed to be Aslan's country, there wouldn't be sin or would there. And and then I came, like you did, Andrew, I thought back to Paralandra and thought, well, mm-hmm. that's there's a difference in Paralandra. Venus is not heaven. It's unfallen, even though there is a sinner. And so right. what we see here in this space that we are currently in in this chapter is, is quite a similar thing where it appears in some ways appears to feel or be maybe even unfallen, but there is absolutely sinners here. Yeah. Um, well, there are, yeah, yeah, there's certainly that. Um, Lewis had some interesting comments on purgatory, and the mm-hmm. gist of what he said about purgatory is, I think that God would be only just polite to allow us coming as dirty as we are in our traveling clothes from this world into the next, wouldn't he give us a little antechamber to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to put on nice clothes and, and get and get freshened up, right? The barest hospitality from the meanest guest would allow you to do at least that. And so I think that there may be some of this. There's also a, a clue. Um, Edmund had a rather sore knee from a hack at Rugger. Mm-hmm. Rugby. And suddenly it's gone, right? right? Exactly. And then remember what happened to King, old King Caspian when he died and went through the river. Um, he turned into this kind of vibrant, um, vibrant young man, you know, golden bearded and all the rest. And so, uh, I think that we have some clues about what might happen, and we do certainly know in in the Great Divorce in Lewis's fictive world. Uh, people who will consign themselves to hell can have vacations in heaven. He talks about that in the, Absolutely, in the preface yes. to Great Divorce. And so um, my, without giving anything away, um, except knowing how it ends, um, <laughs> that I think that there are clues that this may be heaven, even if there are sinners who are interloping there that's, for a moment. That's well said. J- just to go back for a second, and I know this is... is slightly veering a little off topic, but I think it's helpful because we have you here on the show to help us think through this. Lewis, I believe those quotes for him from him on purgatory. Is that in letters to Malcolm that he says that? I can't remember. That's when I need David to look things up for me and send me a text a couple days. You know, it's, it's interesting because, and I, I, I know for a fact that also purgatory comes up for him in some of his collected letters. It's, I can't remember uh-huh. exactly, but you know we see that side of Lewis 
who is take something like purgatory, which he does. I don't. And, and let me clarify. I mean, Lewis, Lewis is a, a reformed Protestant. He's he's Church of England, Church of Ireland all his life. He's not suggesting the kind of purgatory that the Thirty Nine Articles decry. Say yes. Um, so yeah, um, and so this is just an idea of. Um, maybe as part of our transformation, or maybe when we stand before the Bema seat and the wood, hay, and stubble is burned up, maybe this is that moment, and that's what other traditions may call purgatory. So this is not Lewis endorsing a traditional doctrine of purgatory, just to be clear. Yeah, I think it's, it's is it Article 12, I think, in the 39 Articles, that's, um, it talks about like the Romish doctrine of, Yes. of, of yeah. purgatory. The way it's written is just incredibly... Uh, it, it's very clear. It was yes, it's very very Protestant. It's reformational. Would yeah. it be safe to say that Lewis's views are more? He is thinking more about the idea of purgation and not a particular place of purgatory, or is that something we can't necessarily tell? And I'm not talking about right here in Last Battle, but in general with his own theological views. Yeah, you know, and and here's where I think Lewis is very much an amateur theologian. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure. Um, I think that that's an interesting question. I would love to hear it kicked around the inklings. Um, remember that Lewis says, I think in Problem of Pain, that a hell for humans and a heaven for mosquitoes could be quite easily combined, hmm. right? Um, I, I wonder if, you know, in my off moments, not thinking all that theologically, so please no letters. Um, but sometimes I wonder if heaven and hell might ge be geographically in the same place, because in heaven, I want anybody but me. I want the other. I want Christ and mm -hmm. I want all of all of humanity. I want to love others. And in hell, I only want myself. And so can you imagine how hellish it would feel to be surrounded by people who are constantly giving themselves away <laughs> and taking no thought of themselves? You know, so, yeah, my uh, my theology professor probably wouldn't approve. <laughs> but but it still makes a, a, a great thought there, too. And I, I think some of that comes up, Phil. I mean, are you I assume as we're reading through this and you hear Polly and Diggory say things like we didn't feel old anymore, mm -hmm. you have to be figuring mm -hmm. things out of like, wait a second, this can't quite be. This has to be something beyond. Yes, definitely. Uh, this whole mm -hmm. conversation made me feel much more sane uh, and smarter. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did think they were, I thought they had died and I thought mm -hmm. that they were in a, a new place. And mm -hmm. I thought that that place was Aslan's country, which would be the equivalent of heaven. And then I was mm -hmm. confused by each detail that came after that. The fact that they saw their or thought they would see their parents on the train or that their parents would be on the train. That threw me for a loop momentarily because I, I was confused if maybe their parents had died because they're older now and their parents were coming to pick them up. I, my mind went to a few weird places, but then mm -hmm. it was the sentry being there and I couldn't tell is he inside the door or are they able to see him right outside the door? Cause they're, they're looking through the door. I, the illustration helped a lot that they were peering through the door, mm -hmm. but at first mm -hmm. I thought they were looking sideways through the door. I was all over the place. It was really the fact that the sentry was there and I wasn't sure how does someone get into this place if this is quote heaven the equivalent of heaven and that century wasn't necessarily supposed to be there but it makes a little bit more sense especially when andrew pointed out the 
people can visit or it can be a temporary thing. And a lot of these are just preconceived notions of what heaven is, which is informed by some pretty odd stuff, like a lot of cartoons growing up. You get a little halo and you, you float around. Yeah, and a harp and all the rest. Well, and at the end of the chapter, when you see that the dwarves um, refuse to be taken in, uh, and they don't have eyes to see, and this is very much like Orwal, who will not allow herself to see that Psyche is really dressed in finery and living in a palace. Yeah, the palace is really there. It absolutely is there, and... Well, this is David pointed this out, but it's been a cornerstone to my to some of my interpretation of Till We Have Faces. Uh, so kudos to David. Um, Orwald doesn't see the palace until she gets on her knees, hmm. until her body assumes the position of prayer and humility, until her body puts her in the position of selflessness. That's when she's granted vision. Um, but until then, she refuses the invitation to joy. It's it's not long before that, that that the voice, the voice of love, the God of love says to her, why should your heart not dance? And she refuses that invitation. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is a really good, um, a good answer to those who may not believe in hell or may, be, may be universalists. Um, I think that there's a real heaven. And I think that there are people who will not let themselves be taken into heaven. And it's not that God is refusing heaven. Heaven was created for humans. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. And as Lewis says in The Problem of Pain, the gates of hell are indeed locked, but they're locked from the inside. Exactly. Right? And so the dwarves could allow themselves in. And would they like it when they got there? And if they wouldn't like it, what sort of people would they be? Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about the practice of virtue. The development of virtue is to become the kind of people that would be that would be at home in a place where everything was good. But if you're selfish and you're only looking for your own kind or your own self, you would be absolutely miserable in a place where people are looking beyond themselves. And so it's not that God will keep anybody out of heaven. God will thrust heaven on anyone who will sit still for it. Hmm. Um, it's people who when they see that they have to give up something like Pam, right? In great divorce. Oh, if I can't have Michael, I'm going, I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. And she would take her son from heaven to hell so that he would be with her. That's not love. That is the opposite of being a loving mother. Exactly. Right. And her selfishness is kind of one of the, the pass keys into hell. And that's what you see is Lewis would, I think Lewis is picturing a God who would bring anybody into heaven who would, and trying to woo and convince and use everything in his power to create this place uh, or, or to, to offer this place to anyone who will open their eyes to it. But if people will close their eyes and resist his will, you know, like he says in Great Divorce, there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, which is all of our Narnian friends here, and those to whom God says, well, thy will be done. Because he's not going to break our will. He's mm. not going to force us into heaven if we refuse it. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different picture of God than the one that I initially had as a kid. And when I realized that, it really helped me understand the love and the provision of the grace of God who will woo, trick, do anything to get people to 
give up uh, their, 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 their grasping clutch on themselves in order to receive the fruit and the love and the peace and the lack of fear and, and all the goodness that's, that awaits us in Aslan's country. You know, that both of those examples you give from the great divorce I had here in my notes as well, too. The, Sorry. No, 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 no. You know, this is great. And as you're saying that, I was reminded, actually, when I first came across the, uh, the very, very famous quote, the one you just mentioned, that there's two kinds of people, those, uh, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done, right? I remember reading that and not fully comprehending it. I, mean, I probably read it in high school or, you know, mm-hmm. a, b- a bit ago. And it wasn't until, and I want to say it's about, what is it, about two-thirds, three-fourths of the way through the book where you come across the mother. And mm-hmm. I got to this scene. that We've come across other people at this point in the book. And what was so intriguing about this, con- and for listeners who don't know, there's a mother who has this kind of, very controlling, um, very possessive love over her son, right? And what's interesting about her as a character is I think for everyone, readers and other characters alike in the book, it's entirely clear that she is being possessive and selfish. But from her perspective, what she is doing is love. Now, it's not love, obviously, but she seems seemingly thinks that it is love and it's love but it's not love for michael it's self-love exactly and that's the only thing that we cannot take it with us into heaven and it's in that moment for myself as a reader that i understood oh in the end god refuses to break her will and and Mm -hmm. an episode or two ago Phil and I were talking about, I was uh, going through the problem of pain, and I got to near the beginning of Divine Omnipotence, where Lewis talks about God having rules that he has to follow, right? And I think sometimes for us in the Christian tradition, I think I probably, maybe I mentioned this in the episode, um, so maybe our listeners have heard this before, but I think sometimes we let our view of God be, not sometimes, we often let our view of God or our theology be far too too often dictated by what looks nice on a coffee mug, right? Through all, God, through all things, all, you know, all things are possible through God, right? right. And so, live, laugh, love. Or, or that one too. And, <laughs> and so we say, well, God can break any rule and there's nothing that God can't do. And, and Lewis argument here, and we hear it even from Aslan, is he even says, there are things that I can do and things that I cannot do, right? I cannot show these people. You know, he even does a low uh, growl near the end of the chapter mm-hmm. where, um, and we can get into this in a little bit, where the dwarves think that it must be some kind of machine, right, that's making this noise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and Aslan is so clear. He's like, they're I will show you what I can and what I cannot do. And yeah. it's what's so interesting is I think Lewis does such a great job. And I, th- I wonder if this is because he's an amateur theologian of making that much more palatable and mm-hmm. for laypersons like myself, right? Mm-hmm. To say, oh, that's that's what it means. It's not that God is 
simply saying, well, all right, if you don't choose me, then I'm going to just take my ball and play. Because I think when I was a high school and I read that passage in The Great Divorce, I thought it meant, well, if I can't have you, then I'm just going to take my ball and I'm going to leave the playground and like, fine, you can go have it almost like out of spite, right? And so, that's not what God's doing. Yeah, one of the analogies I've been using around this topic lately, and I don't have children, but I've been a, I've been a sibling and I have lots of friends who are parents. When your when your kids fight, um, and your parents make the child's okay, you guys knock that off and now say I'm sorry, and shake hands, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then they say the impossible and mean it. Well, they can make us fake it, and they can make us shake hands, and they can make us mutter the words, but unless my heart has changed, I am not going to mean it, hmm. right? And so God is effectively saying. I can't make you mean it. And if you refuse to soften your heart, right? If you refuse to soften your heart to me and harden your heart to your own you know, nastiness, I can't make you do it any more than a parent can make their kids really forgive each other. Now you hope that before 20 minutes or two years are gone, they you know get over the offense and they love each other again. But in that moment, you can't force them to, you know, I mean, it's the great theologian Bonnie Raitt, right? I can't make you love me if you don't. Um, and here are the dwarfs. Um, uh, I can't make your heart feel something it won't. And the dwarfs won't be taken in. And you got to get the Latin sense of that, uh, of, the, of the word. Um, wolo, like voluntary, is to willfully do something. Wolo means I will. Nolo is the Latin word for I will will not like i i am mm -hmm. willing not to do that it is my will that this not happen it's by the way where we get that great phrase willy-nilly mm, it's really. or nolo right yeah and so the dwarves are nolo dwarves they're nolo 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 i will not i will not i will not and eventually god's gonna say okay i'm I, your choice I wish you would make another choice, but I won't reach inside you and turn you into a robot so that you will march automatically into heaven. Mm -hmm. You know, he won't do that to us. And so it is, he's honoring the choice of the will, which is this dangerous gift that he gives us. He wants us to turn, turn it to himself. So he wants us to feel sorry uh, and to reconcile, uh, but there's only so much he can do. You know, what's, what's interesting and the dwarves, and really, that's kind of the crux of this entire chapter. Is there? I mean, it's even what the chapter is titled, is the way in which Lewis, you know, as this conversation we're having, he paints the dwarves as you know refusing to be taken in, and that's something that could stand for all time. This this idea of you know refusing to will yourself or willing yourself not to, but then there's also this other approach Lewis has, which is that he paints the dwarves in a, a very modern, kind of borderline into postmodernist uh, depiction here. And Joseph Pierce had a great quote that I came across where he said, the knowledge we gain through our physical senses is meant to lead us into a deeper metaphysical truth. And he made the connection, which became very obvious to me after I'd read his own connection, right? Uh, it always works this way. Oh, how did I not see this at first? Where the dwarves are given opportunities to embrace the truth through every one of their five senses. 
So there's the sound of Aslan growling. Mm. There is the sight. There's the darkness, but they refuse to see. These, there's the feast, the taste they're given. At one point, Tyrion grabs one of the doors. I think it's Diggle, right, and throws him, and he feels like he's gone up against a wall. And then there's the flower that Lucy gives him that he believes smells like manure, right? So all yeah. of their senses, there is something presented to them to say, here is the deeper metaphysical truth yep. of your yep. reality. And they yep. refuse to see it. And Lewis does this exact same thing in yep. chapter 14 of Don Treader to go back all the way to the beginning of this episode where Coriakin says, you know, uh, or no, it's Edmund who says, golly gee, he's a retired star. And Eustace very famously says, well, in our star, uh, or in our world, a star is just a uh, giant flaming ball of gas. Yeah. And Coriakin <laughs> reminds us that, that sun in, in your world, that's not what it is, simply what it is made out of. It's not only that's not all that it is. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so there's there's this deeper metaphysical layer beneath that very basic platonic ideal. And I think this comes out as well in the dwarf's response here, in the dwarf's response to Aslan growling. Here's what they say. I want to read it because it's so interesting. Hear that that's the gang at the other end of the stable, trying to frighten us. They do it with a machine of some kind. Don't take any notice. They won't take us, in italics, in again. And it's that line, they do it with a machine of some kind, right? Uh -huh. This idea that, well, those previous beliefs, well, they were some kind of, as, as Lewis might even jokingly say tongue-in-cheek, they were a medieval superstition. Right. Mm. They're using some kind of modern machinery and whether it be, as he called with Freud, the new look. Right. As he talked about mm -hmm. kind of Freudian mm -hmm. psychology or whether it be with actual actual industrializing civilization, that there's this kind of machinery that almost it's both able for us to make sense of a post kind of um, a, a post enlightenment world where. All of those beautiful metaphysical things were just, like we said, medieval superstition. And machines can answer all of the questions that we used to think that only metaphysics could answer. No, no, no. All those things that were once otherworldly, they were once supernatural. No, they can be answered with some kind of modern explanation. Okay. And and so let's do a little etymology. I just looked this up. So machine is a very interesting word. And yes, while there is all of that modernization and urbanization and they Lewis and Tolkien despised the the the, the car factory that was being put into Oxford, machine comes from Middle French, which means a device or a contrivance. Hmm. Hmm. So it may mean it may have that very modern sense of machine. But it's also a device or a contrivance. They're making it up somehow. So a machine gets assigned to this thing where we can't explain how they did that thing. So let's carry both of those um, senses. But it also, you know, your literature students will know the deus ex machina, mm -hmm. right? The god and the machine, right? Like in Shakespeare's time, they would, you know, lower a god from, from a machine yep. or something like that. Right. So... So I think that there's that where they're saying, hey, there's somebody behind the curtain. They are trying to contrive, right? They are trying to pull one over on us. Um, 
in addition, and, and the mechanical sense I think is good too. It reminds me so much of Susan and, and what you were talking about just there really is pulling a couple of things together for me. And I promise not to footnote you in my book because I won't remember, but it's going in there. Um, Susan, when asked, the name of Aslan is spoken for the first time. Each of the four children has a numinous reaction, mm -hmm. a reaction to something that is holy and other and large, right? Peter feels strong and brave and, um, Edmund feels a, a mysterious horror. Susan feels as if a lovely smell or a strain of music had passed by her. And I think that phrase passed by is signal because Susan kind of doesn't get it. Hmm. And we won't spoil anything for Phil, but Susan doesn't get it. But when we will not, um, when we will not hear the appeal to mind or to imagination or to heart, God will stoop to appeal to the body. And that's the parable, right, of then maybe I'll send my son. And so it's the body that he has to stoop as low. It's, it's a completely kenotic, it's a kenosis moment, an emptying out to assume a body, even, a, you know, the, the, the death on the cross. Um, it's very bodily as the last resort. Um, Susan is appealed to sensually because she thinks the rest of the stuff is made up. But it's the rest of the stuff that's actually real. And now that you mentioned that they that the dwarves are appeal, have all five senses appealed to, now I've got to go back and look at Orwell. Mm -hmm. Because I am sure that all five senses are appealed are, to yes. and that she ignores it. And so that's going in the book, and I'm not giving you credit, but I'm giving you credit tonight. <laughs> well, that's my credit is I'm reading Joseph Pierce as well, too. So, <laughs> Well, and to Joseph Pierce, who's a dear friend and an amazing yes. scholar. But I think that he'll appeal to, sometimes to the body as a last resort. I think that's well um, said. And remember Susan's reaction. The dwarfs think that Aslan's voice is a machine. Susan thinks that the risen Aslan is a ghost. Oh, that's right. He is the very opposite of a ghost, right? He is fully bodied and mm -hmm. intends our good and, is, uh, not and is altogether there and is not dead. Right. right. He's the opposite of a, of a ghost. And I think that Susan also um, perhaps uh, perhaps they appeal um, to the bodily because nothing else will answer her imagination. But oh, we see what happens with the with the man with the lizard. When I abandon the bodily, God slays it so that it can ride again, so that it rise again so that I can ride it like a horse and surpass all others. Mm -hmm. And so the body, brother ass, St. Francis would call it, uh, can be a potent gift. But I think it's one of the last resorts of, of Aslan's appeals to us. That's so, so good. You know, and in that appeal as well, too, we mentioned a few um, a few episodes ago and Andrew, you when we were talking before we we hit record here, I mentioned that I am in this this interesting season where I have gone back and back and back again to uh, talking about bicycles, which is um, uh -huh. this this essay that Lewis published in October of forty six, and in this, which I won't get into it again because I think it was just two or three episodes ago, right, that we mentioned this film, and in that Lewis though leads his readers in this kind of um, to dialogue, it feels actually very much like um, a platonic dialogue where you have these two characters speaking back and forth, and 
Lewis hilariously has himself as kind of the one who's not understanding, and this other man is the one speaking to him. And he goes through these four stages of enchantment, where he talks about the enchantment in the bicycle of being unenchanted, then being enchanted, then being disenchanted, and then being re-enchanted. And I keep going back to this over and over again, because the dwarves are stuck in being in this, un this, this disenchanted stage. But what's interesting, which and what's unique and, and different about being unenchanted versus being disenchanted is that those who are disenchanted once knew that they were enchanted. Uh -huh. So the truth of what occurs during enchantment is still known to them. They are not ignorant uh -huh. of that truth. Those who are unenchanted are ignorant. Those who are disenchanted know the truth, but have decided that that truth cannot be real or they have rejected it. And, you know, in, in, my, in my personal life, in my work life, I mostly work with students who are right on the cusp of becoming disenchanted. They might only be three or four mm -hmm. years away from it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I spend most of my time with children who are enchanted. And mm -hmm. what's, what is so intriguing to me, and I don't have all the answers here, and I, maybe, maybe as we keep talking about this, some of this will, will start to make more and more sense to me. But in order for us to become re-enchanted, if we have hope for Susan, because we did, Phil, we, you know, we learned about her no longer being a friend of Narnia. If there is hope for I, her. I lost hope at that point. But now that Indra has hinted at something else, I have a little more hope. I don't know if that's coming. Well, in, and I think some of that, that hope, Andrew, y'all will come across this in, the, in Letters to Children because her name appears in some yeah. of those letters written after Last Battle is published. Yeah. And, and Lewis kind of very, is very coy about it. He doesn't give much information, but I think— But he makes a purgatorial affirmation, right? Exactly. After Narnia ends, he says, and I don't want to give it away for poor Phil— but he says, well, I, you know, they're, they're, I still believe that there's hope for Susan. Exactly. Right. And that's even after a, the apparent story is done, there's still a space. And in the same way, Orwell comes to the end of her book, literally to the last words. Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I might. And she writes words and we and obscures them with her head. She comes to the end of her story. I know what the words are that Lewis never revealed. Um, I know the words that she wrote, but that what she wrote is the beginning of our story. And you see that, and again, don't want to spoil anything, but you'll see that, that idea that the end is the beginning. Mm -hmm. You see it in Harry Potter, but part of the reason that you see it in Harry Potter is because Joe Rowling says, I can't walk through a room with a book by C.S. Lewis and not stop and pick it up, <laughs> right? And so at the end of things, it's the very beginning. I uh, certainly see that in The Great Divorce, mm -hmm. right? And just to go back and, and finish this thought yeah, about— Yeah, sorry. No, 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 you're fine. This is great. This is great. To finish this thought about reenchantment, I mm -hmm. think what the dwarves, they seem to be embarrassed and, and, be, and uh, contemptible when it comes— mm -hmm. whenever they reflect they're on— the fact that they were once enchanted. How, how could we have fallen for something? We refuse to be taken in. And there's uh -huh. this presupposition there that 
they were taken in and they're embarrassed that they had once been taken in. And mm-hmm. I think that so much of reenchantment, which Lewis talks about, has to be with acknowledging, and he speaks about it in the essay, that the mirage was real. What mm-hmm. you did feel, even if it wasn't actually completely true, was someone was was pointing towards truth. One of the mm-hmm. things that in in talking about bicycles mentions is the man speaking about what how he be when he first became enchanted said he found that the bicycle was almost the secret to life. Well, that is silly. The bicycle is uh-huh. not the secret to life. But that uh-huh. feeling that this might unlock something so much deeper, that level of enchantment, that is the numinous, right? And yeah. that is when we want to re-enchant ourselves or children, right, or even adults, right? It's mm-hmm. acknowledging that what occurred during enchantment was not something to be embarrassed by. And I think Lewis actually says this quite well. I was recently reading his uh, review of The Hobbit, and at the very mm-hmm. end of that, he says this, and I'll, I'll read it here. He says this as he's, um, this was published uh, actually on my birthday in 1937, ah. October 2nd, 1937. He, this is his you final are paragraph. so old. Yeah, exactly, yes. Uh, <laughs> this is his final paragraph in his review of The Hobbit. For it must be understood that this is a children's book only in the sense that the first of many readings can be undertaken in the nursery. Alice uh-huh. in Wonderland is read gravely by children with and with laughter by grown-ups. The Hobbit, uh-huh. on the other hand, will be funnier to its youngest readers, and only years later, at a tenth or a twentieth reading, will they begin uh-huh. to realize what deft scholarship and profound reflection have gone to make everything in it so ripe, so friendly, and in its own way so true. Prediction uh-huh. is dangerous but The Hobbit may well prove to be a classic. Yeah. And I yeah. do think that it's, the it's and Lewis and Tolkien, this is what, you know, is somewhat of the impetus of why they want to write children's literature is because they're so frustrated with literary criticism around children's yep. literature. That no, yep. something like Alice, The Hobbit, these Narnia books, you shouldn't think back to them when you're an adult and say, oh, I can't believe I fell for that. I see that sometimes where even my own students who are starting to get that. Oh, I can't believe I liked that book back in second grade. Well, what, yeah. let's let's talk about that. That doesn't mean that that book was perfect, but something there drew you in. And that is that can be the hindrance into reenchantment. And that's what the dwarves don't get. Yes. Yes. Well, and again, at the risk of spilling all of the magic beans, um, there's that moment that we'll get in a chapter or two where Susan kind of mocks them for wanting to get get together to talk about Narnia. And she's interested in much more pragmatic thing, things. Mm-hmm. And that's very nearly at the last chapter of the last battle. But I marvel at the way that it circles back. And I've spoken about this uh, before. It circles back to the very dedication to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. And the problem mm-hmm. with the dwarfs and the problem with Susan and the problem with the, the gleefully disenchanted is that they are not yet old enough in in Tenedril's sense, in the Lady of Paralandra's yes. sense. Oh, I am older, right? They are not yet old enough. Susan isn't old enough to start reading fairy tales again. She's not old enough to appreciate that the Narnia stories were more real than any of the other things in her life. I mean, poor Susan, she's Clarissa Dalloway. Right. Mm. She's standing at the stair with all of her party and her flowers to get. 
and she's all concerned with these things, but it's the other things that are far more important. And, and she's on the cusp of that. You know, I had a letter from a student not long ago. Um, he was a student in my C.S. Lewis class when I taught high school. And um, we got along great. And then the second half of the year, um, I also had to teach his English class and that didn't go so well. I was, I didn't know what I was doing. I was taken over for a teacher that left and, and he kind of got disenchanted, I think with me, uh, as well as high school. And I didn't hear from him for years. A friend requested him after graduation, didn't hear from him. And I just got a note from him uh, in the last couple of months. And he said, um, Hey, I've changed from engineering. I'm now going to be a teacher. Uh, I had to write an assignment about a teacher who I admired and respected, who influenced me. Here's that two-page essay that I wrote about you. Oh, wow. And um, wow. he said, I'm sorry that I kind of, I just needed to close the door on all of that time in high school, um, which I thought was a, a brilliant phrase. Um, and I wrote back and I said, it's a really difficult era, a really difficult time in a person's life to try to become human. Mm -hmm. You know, those teenage years with the upper cortex is barely waking up and all the rest of it. And of course, it had a wonderful reconciliation with him. Don't blame him at all. It's, it's hard. And he wasn't old enough to start reading fairy tales again, right? He wasn't old enough for re-enchantment. Um, and, and I think that, that one of the grave warnings, but the delightful promises of this chapter is that, um, it's fine to be unenchanted and disenchanted, but it's not fine to stay there. And there's something much, much better uh, further up and further in, isn't there? That's great. Similar with, it's. I don't think there's anything wrong with, quote, deconstructing your faith. In some cases, mm -hmm. your faith might need to be deconstructed because it was not properly constructed. But right. the problem I see is when people stop there. And mm -hmm. I've talked to enough people at this point. One of my good friends, who is very, very strong in his faith now, had a very dark time where there was a lot of questioning and a lot of doubt. And I didn't know them during that time, but I see where they are now, and I'm amazed that they even had that time of doubt. But they emerged from it so much stronger, and it gives mm -hmm. me so much hope for... I have people on... Uh, I play uh, Ultimate on the weekends, and I have several people on my team, and one by one, they all started sharing how they grew up in the church, and they were sharing very negative mm -hmm. things that they did not care for they did not like that quote um halloween had been boycotted they just they mm. were everybody was going don't, around don't saying, visit my house next week <laughs> we gotta get no. my son's spider-man costume <laughs> <laughs> they were going around saying all these negative things and at first it makes me incredibly sad because i can't help but view that as a permanent perspective but having talked to so many people and hearing stories like this where there's this time of disenchantment but then mm -hmm. a time of re-enchantment is possible it gives mm -hmm. me so much hope for of course these people that are only in their early 20s or even early 30s their story hopefully isn't done yet well and you know i just um i just got back from clergy conference as a priest in the episcopal diocese of central florida um, and we invited a couple of authors from the Orlando area, which is where I live. Um, they just wrote a great book called The Great Dechurching. Um, and looking at the phenomenon of the 40 million people who are now considered dechurched. They've got mm -hmm. great statistics. They did a ton of research. Uh, it's really, uh, it's very well done. And it's starting to make some noise in lots of different places. Mm. Um, and he said, of the 40 million, 8 million or 20%, are um, uh, 
Well, he says out of out of the 40 million, 30 million are casually dechurched and 10 million are casualties. Hmm. Right. And so most of the people who have dechurched are not breaking down their faith and, and vowing never to return and all the rest. Um, some of them were never really Christians. So if you ask them about the Nicene Creed, you know, uh, the the eight million of the 40 would only one percent would say that Jesus Christ was the son of God. Mm-hmm. But almost all the rest of those who have been dechurched, some of them have a very high orthodoxy scale, 98 yeah. percent of one group. And mostly what they want is a nudge to come back to church. Now, that's not a panacea. And I'm I'm running quickly over over deep research. Um, but I think that once one of the things that happens when we deconstruct faith is we deconstruct our false image of what we or others projected faith to be, right. which is why I wasn't troubled by the Philip Pullman books, you know, his dark materials, oh, the, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, like Amber Spyglass and all that. It's because the church that Philip Pullman can't wait to ridicule is a church that I don't believe in either. Yeah. What he portrays as the church is not the church, like Screwtape says, as we see it as a great army with its banners unfurled. And what Pullman is trying to tear down is exactly the same thing I'm trying to tear down in the pulpit and in the, in the parish every week. Um, and if they let go of their false notions or their inherited notions mm-hmm. of what they thought being in faith is, and they meet the not tame, wild, but good lion. And I had a friend who, um, I have a friend who, deconstructed very publicly on social media and ex-evangelical this and all kinds of explorations of sexuality and all the rest. And I spoke to them recently and they're in classes to become Roman Catholic. Wow. Um, they're not going back to the evangelical church of their upbringing, but they're marching as steadily as they can towards true authentic historical faith. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that if we see that arc of enchanted unenchanted, disenchanted, re-enchanted. If we see it as an arc and we see it from Aslan's perspective at the far end saying, there is no other stream, come through, keep going, all right? And Lewis, I think in Mere Christianity it is, says um, if somebody, half a half-hearted Christian stops going to church, that's often a move closer towards truth huh. um, than farther away. So, and you certainly see some of that here with the dwarves. Absolutely. Oh, this is great. This is really great. Tyler, well, I want to keep reading lots of books and talking about these books so that I can connect that many different things that <laughs> that succinctly. That was impressive. I'm a lot older than you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, the very end of the chapter here, Aslan does actually appear as we move away from the, the dwarves. And he, as and we already mentioned, time. he says, yeah, this is the first we've seen of him in this book. And all the children who have this long relationship with him, uh, the children and Diggory and Polly as well, who we've been told are actually younger, or at least appear to be younger than they were before they arrived, they kind of bury their hands in his in his fur and they hug him. And Tyrion, who has never met Aslan before, uh, kneels before him, and Aslan, you know, pretty much says, "Well done, good and faithful servant." Right? He doesn't use those exact words, but he tells him, "You've done well." here and we then he does explain to us that he's you know he's not able to do everything for the dwarves we do have him um, 
you know, growl or make that low, dull roar. And then we get left here on a cliffhanger because he does bring a feast for the dwarves. We've mentioned this where, you know, there's this beautiful feast laid out and they kind of think that everything they must be eating would be whatever they find in a stable. They even then, even though it's not by their senses, good food or drink, they still fight over it despite the fact that they think they're eating hay or all kinds of weird things. And when they when they all kind of come back to it, Aslan makes it clear. He says, as I mentioned earlier, uh, he says, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Yeah. And that's pretty much where the chapter ends. He does turn around and say, uh, time, time, and now it is time, but it yeah. ends and you don't really know what that means yet. So, yeah. yeah. But yeah, Andrew but, does his... But, sp- we, but if we have read our silver chair, I was going to we'll say... Remember. <laughs> I was going to say, Andrew especially knows because he just came from a silver chair conference. So he's yeah. got that right in the forefront of his mind. And you're <laughs> yeah. looking at us like you were very confused right now. Yeah, I can't wait to re-listen <laughs> to this in a couple years and, and nod along with all of our listeners. Well, well, before we pass on to that, I just noticed something. So I'm so grateful that you invited me on today because I've never noticed this before. And, of course, I'm now seeing things far more sacramentally oh, in my sure. new work as a priest. So... Um, each of the dwarfs, um, uh, let's see, Aslan raised his head, shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees, and in each and and each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. That's what I do on Sundays: mm-hmm. is I raise a goblet of good wine in my right hand and say to the congregation, "This is my blood." Drink this, all of you. This is my blood. You know, uh, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many. Do this for the remembrance of me. He's making a Eucharistic invitation. He's giving them a goblet of wine, and we know what that stands for. We've got the, you know, the whole Galahad and the Grail thing, but the Grail thing goes back to the cup at the Last Supper. And then they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and they said ug fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at that's an incarnational invitation as well because that's looking at the manger Mm. it's the trough Hmm. where the donkeys ate and it's dirty because here he is taking on this human flesh and it's water. It's the water of life in this, you know, disguise. Malcolm Geit says, we see you now disguised as everything. Mm-hmm. So even their description of it has this echo of incarnation that even the Narnians won't know because we don't know Aslan's story. But we on this side of the wardrobe door know that that dirty, the dirty water in the trough is in some ways a symbol of Christ. Absolutely. You know, of the Christ yes. child. Right. And even that he's like, how much more of me can I force down your throats? You know, people say, oh, God, I don't want you to shove religion down your throats. God's doing as much as he can. Aslan's doing as much as he can to get them to taste and see that the Lord is good. But they just refuse. That's, that's, I mean, that's, this is so great. That sacramental imagery there. I mean, the, the mere fact they're sitting here, they're holding, you know, this symbol of the blood. Right, right, and they right. just and and Orwall uh, and and Psyche holds out a goblet of wine, and mm-hmm. Orwall thinks that it is water. 
right? Yes. And her blindness has done the reverse of the first miracle, right? She has turned wine into, into water. water, exactly. <laughs> Which I never noticed until now. So thank you again. No footnotes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's. You know, one of the things that I have found, too, is Lewis has littered so much of his chronicles with sacramental imagery. We just got to, right. and I, we've mentioned this on the show, I was with yeah. my students, we got to the very end of uh, Don Treader, and I love that. I think it's Doris Myers who kind of helped yeah. um, in that in C.S. Lewis in Context walk through yeah. that idea that, no, the Lord's Supper is not occurring at Aslan's table. It can't be. There's no presence of Aslan there. Right. How could that be the Eucharist? Instead, yeah. you know, the Lord's Supper, the sacramental imagery given to that, the Eucharist and the Don Treader is when the Lamb is there and they share yeah. a meal together with the Christ. Yeah. And that, yeah. and, and Lewis... It's the marriage feast of the Lamb. Exactly. Lewis right. consistently uses this sacramental imagery to consistently show us the truths really in a way that I think makes it most palatable. And he has that great line, I don't have it in front of me, where he says when he's describing the Eucharist, it was actually when I was, when I've tried to explain the idea of a sacrament to someone who maybe is not as familiar with it, I've used his quote and I don't have it directly in front of me, where he says, there's no place where the veil is so thin between yeah. us and God. That's the way that yeah. Lewis, it might be in a letter he writes that or in maybe like letters to yeah. Malcolm or something, but that's here. And then he also says, apart from the blessed sacrament, the holiest thing presented to your senses um, is your neighbor. Yeah, and that's weight of right? glory, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But uh, Which is not the quote that you're talking about, no, but exactly, that's another but place where he's elevating the sacrament. Yes, and it's... I mean, what? How much more could Aslan give? He can't, and that's I think what's so interesting about this idea right. that Aslan has to follow rules. He literally cannot give more than himself. It, right. You're no longer being logical or rational. It's impossible to give more than yourself. The dwarves have all of him, and they still reject it. If he had to break people to make them follow him, he would never have given us good or free will to begin with. Mm -hmm. Let me also add a note to um, to people not familiar with the liturgical tradition, because that's that wasn't my tradition growing sure. up. There was a nothing growing up, and I'm an Episcopapticostatarian. Um, <laughs> but it was it took me a long time and i'm not an ex anything i love i'm not a former baptist i'm not a recovering presbyterian i embrace all of those traditions <clears throat> but a friend of mine a graduate of wheaton college had a professor there not a catholic um, but he said every every protestant every evangelical who is not a catholic should know perfectly why and should consider carefully the Catholic Church. Um, just by sheer numbers and sheer courtesy, um, it pays every Christian to understand the liturgical and sacramental nature of Christian worship. Because for 1,500 years, we were all Catholic, if we weren't Orthodox. And more Christians alive today are liturgical Christians than mm -hmm. any other breed combi brand combined. Right, 1.3 million Catholics yes. in the world today, and add in all the Lutherans and the and the and the Episcopalians and any of the other kind of liturgical Methodists and stuff. Peep, these potent symbols of Eucharist, of bread and wine, of you know uh, of the sacraments, 
these are part of our Christian heritage, and I'm not encouraging anybody to change churches, but I'm encouraging careful Christian readers to steep themselves in, in the symbolism and the, and the understanding of the sacraments just so we can be literate culturally, religiously, and literarily. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that invitation, Andrew, is a great place for us to end this chapter, that invitation, mm -hmm. because what you're inviting people into is a sacramental further up and further in, sure. right? For those sure. who are, and even for those of us who are in more liturgical traditions, there's always to go further up and further in. There's no stopping. It's not, you know, it, there's, there's no, it's continually going. And Phil, again, you don't know what further up and further in means, sorry. But <laughs> three more chapters. if you know the great divorce, he says it in the great divorce too. That's very true. But any yeah. any final thoughts, Andrew, that you'd like to share with us before we just take a quick look ahead and to the next chapter and then wrap up? You know, I'll just, uh, taking a cue from what you just said <clears throat> and what we were just talking about, I think the liturgy and the sacrament, the Eucharist is important, but part of the thing for me as a priest is now not only do I get to make the sacrament, I get to consecrate the host. Mm -hmm. But I also do it every week, and I'll do it. I do it four times a week, four, five times a week, often. And so this meal is kind of like the meal at the end of Ramadu's Island, mm. right? Every um, morning, and right? it's 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 a new meal, and the mercies of God, the steadfast love, is new every morning. And no matter what time of day your listeners are listening in, the steadfast love of God is new every morning, and it's always morning somewhere. Right? <laughs> Very true. It is never not time to partake of that feast of mercy and asking forgiveness and receiving that food. Um, and there's this kind of, and those meals, the, the, the pandemic couldn't stop Holy Eucharist, mm -hmm. you know, couldn't stop the sacrament. And those meals will continue until we find ourselves with a goblet of rich red wine in our hand and a feast upon our knees. And God hates the day when that comes. But until then, we'll enjoy the feast of each other's fellowships and fellowship and these good books and all the other good things that God gives us. Amen. Amen. Well said. Any final thoughts, Phil? I'm excited to wrap this book up. Yeah. <laughs> Just not only to understand what further up and further, further in, yeah, further yeah. up and further in. That's yeah. right. It's yeah. all starting to... I believe you're, you're not next chapter, and this is a great segue for us because next time we're together, we'll be at chapter 14, uh, Night Falls on Narnia. And this uh, was originally... Night with a, an N. What was that? It's Night with an N, not a K. Yeah, not, not a nightfall. There is, yeah, it's, uh, it's Night Falls, not K-N-I-G-H-T. N-I-G-H-T, yeah. Yes, this was actually one of the original titles for the book yeah. that Lewis yeah. toyed around with for a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, in this chapter, Phil, Aslan brings an end to Narnia. Oh. Mm -hmm. And this next chapter we're going to read, which you can go home and read tonight, hey, Aslan might have bring to actually. <laughs> an end to Narnia. <laughs> And after we go off air, I'll tell them why this next chapter um, uh, unlocks a, a key moment until we have faces. But listeners will have to uh, we'll have to, have to wait till the next time, time you're on and we get to just talk yeah. about till we have faces together. Well, <laughs> Andrew, thank you so incredibly much for being on the show today, for having this wonderful conversation. It's great mm -hmm. to both geek out about Lewis, but then also mm -hmm. talk about the things that Lewis points us to, those transcendent gospel yeah. truths that are at the heart of all that Lewis is doing and why we're so thankful 
for him. It's not, I mean, yes, it is him and his work, but it's ultimately because who he is pointing us to. And you've done such a great job leading us there today. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Very well. And I may just suggest I hadn't thought about this before. Maybe it's geeking in. (laughs) I (laughs) love it. Yes. We're peeling back the onion and getting into the, to the real truth. It's just an immense honor to be asked to come on and, and thank you listeners for the honor. I mean, there's lots of choices and podcasts and for the honor of, you taking some time out of your day to listen uh, to listen to us, you know, uh, explore, you know, play around with these treasures. Thank you for mm-hmm. for the time, and I pray that it's a blessing to you and a, and a joy as much as it's been a joy to share time with that with Daniel and Phil. Yeah, we're we're thrilled you're here. Very quickly before you go, I want to share with everyone an Andrew Lazo story. So what oh, what was the service that we all went to when we were in South Carolina? It was at St. Philip's mm-hmm. uh, Church, yeah. I believe. We got to go to a um, Holy Eucharist Thank church, yep. and, or Holy Eucharist service, um, Holy which, Eucharist, it, yep. which actually had the Archbishop of the Anglican Church in North America, mm-hmm. Archbishop Foley Beach, which I had never—maybe you have before—I have never been in a service with an Archbishop before. I've been in services with bishops, um, mm-hmm. but that was a very special—it was a very beautiful service, had a full-on— uh, not only a, a choir, but they had some horns and some other instruments. Very beautiful, yeah. wonderful. And the silver they used oh, for the service right. was actually given by King George the Third. Yes, to that church. It so was before the revolution. It was given to the church, I believe, in the seventeen, I think, forties or something. But the yeah. the the meal that I remember going up to the front. Uh, to receive the Eucharist, and they're they're giving it on these plates, and I went back later and read, and I was like, oh my goodness, these are plates that yeah. actually were given by the King yeah. of England. How how interesting and cool. With a new... in my heart of in my heart of hearts, I said, thanks for lunch. Sorry about Yorktown. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say like, well, we're Virginians, so you know we love that. Yeah, it had an an old English note on it saying that if you do choose to no longer be a part of this country, then I would like these back. And then, <laughs> Apparently never gave yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So what I wanted to share was the music was incredible, and mm. the the venue was incredible. I think it enhanced the music. There are horns. There's a chorus. Beautiful, beautiful service. But at the end of every song, Andrew would turn to me, and I wish I I wish this was a video podcast because I I could make the the facial expression, but he just exhaled. He would puff his cheeks and exhale and go. <sighs> <laughs> and look at me just we were both blown away by the by yeah. the music and um, yeah i think that that level of appreciation is something that mm. comes through when you talk about lewis's work and when you talk mm. about the work that lewis was also um reading and uh engaging with and we're really oh. glad that you uh, joined us today well thank you i think that sometimes as an evangelical i got lost in the true to the uh, expense of the good and the beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that, that that experience shared with you and certainly uh, reading reading Lewis, especially in the Narnias and elsewhere, is the good and the true and the beautiful all mm-hmm. all piled together on the page, just waiting for us to, to turn it and to, and to dive right in. Right. Well said. Well, Phil, will you wrap us up today? I sure will. This episode is made possible by our patrons over at patreon.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can listen to a bonus episode each month, along with other rewards. Special thanks goes to John Marr, Emily Wakefield, Ryan Smith, Ashlyn Washburn, and Andrew 
Ender Trophy for supporting us at our top tiers. And Yay. real quick, I just want to point out, I just sent out all the stickers. You did? You so sent out all the, the stickers? By the time this episode comes out, they will definitely have All the season seven stickers to the patrons and supporters at that level mm-hmm. as well, too. And I'll also just say that uh, all the links to uh, Andrew's work and to Pints with Jack will all be in the episode's description as well, too. So if you have enjoyed this conversation and don't already listen to Pints with Jack or haven't been following Andrew, you can find a lot more of his work down uh, in the episode's description right now. Right. And then I'll do a, a shortened version of this, but email us at thenarniapodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 406-646-6733. And you can also check out lamppostlistener, all one word, dot com uh, to find out about other guests on the show, other books that we've read, and uh, notes from the show. Thanks for coming along on this journey. We'll be back next time for Chapter 14.